when I start like to see with my students, okay, why are you here? What are you hoping to achieve? Why is music important to you? You don't have to wait to feel uh, good or wait that you are not feeling anxious or wait that this piece is perfect before you go on performing. You can do those two things at once if you can, you know, learn the skill of just feeling one way, behaving in another way. That is such a central idea to being psychologically flexible. And that's really like the, the main mechanism of the act model there. Welcome back to another episode of Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guests today are David Hunkos and Elvira de Paiva Ponia. David is a clinical psychologist based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He works with individuals on clinical issues ranging from anxiety to mood and substance use disorders. He's also on faculty with the Voice Study Center in the UK, where he lectures on topics such as peak performance and statistics research design, and trains music teachers in using acceptance and commitment therapy principles to address performance anxiety and enhance music performance. Based in Vienna, Elvira is a classically trained singer who performs internationally. With degrees in vocal pedagogy and psychology, in addition to vocal performance, she is also a dedicated educator and teaches individual and group singing lessons and facilitates music classes for young children. In this conversation, we explore a range of topics, including the story behind Dave and Elvira's collaboration for their new book, Act for Musicians, how Act can support musicians in both formal clinical approaches as well as within music lessons, how Elvira's direct experience as a professional musician has played an important role in this work, some of the barriers within music education to integrate mental and emotional components, some of the common challenges musicians face like performance anxiety, perfectionism, burnout, shame, and self-critical thinking. And we end by discussing Dave and Elvira's hopes for the future of ACT within the music world. As many of you already know, I'm really passionate about music myself. You know, the music you hear in the start and end of this is stuff I've done myself and uh, yeah, it's been something I've really cared about throughout my life outside of being a therapist and a human more generally. Uh, a lot of this was really interesting to reflect on as we talked. You know, I've struggled with a lot of the challenges that they discuss in the book and have been able to work through those and continue to work through them. I share a little bit about this throughout the episode uh, to help enrich the conversation. So hope you find that helpful. Um, yeah, thank you so much to Dave and Elvira for doing this. I loved our conversation and, uh, I suggest any of you interested in this work to buy their new book and support them. And if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, 
just keep listening or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to it. You could leave a review on iTunes. Those are always fun to read. Um, I still get surprised that people actually listen to this. So that's just another layer of, um, I guess, getting to acknowledge that you're here and listening and finding value in it. So thank you all so much. And yeah, I think that's it. So let's get into the conversation with Dave and Alvere. Okay, well, here we go. This I've been looking forward to this so much, clearly, as we all, you know, you see my guitars behind me and... Uh, you know, if we're fusing act and music. I I don't know what uh what uh, what better topic to talk about. So thank you all for being here. Thank you very much. Thank for you for inviting having us. us. Yeah. Um, how about we start with just some uh, some introductions and tell me a little bit about who you are, your background, and then what led you maybe into this work together. Sure, I'll, I'll start quickly. Um, so I'm Dave Hunkos. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice in the Philly area. Uh, recently started working in a Jersey practice, um, not too far from Philly, though. Uh, yeah, I, I guess you could say I wear multiple hats. Um, throughout the week, I'm a clinical practitioner in private practice, working with adults and teens, treating a garden variety of mental health problems. Um, we can talk about the clinical focus if needed, but I assume what we're all here to talk about is the specialty area. So over the last 10 years or so, I've taken to using ACT with musicians primarily to treat music performance anxiety. That's been uh, the main focal point of that work. Um, I published a few articles in that vein. I have grown that research now where I'm uh, supervising others to do it, other non-clinical practitioners uh, to do that work. And Elvira can can relate. She is a singing teacher. Um, and that is kind of like the target training population I've been working with lately, because uh, I work for a school in the UK in addition to being a private practice that uh, confers degrees for singing teachers in vocal pedagogy. So a lot of the research I've done in growing this this body of work here has has occurred there. And that has been the, the type of training that I've been up to. I've been working with singing teachers and training them, training them to use ACT as a non-clinical intervention within the music lesson or within other settings to treat music performance anxiety and other other issues that musicians struggle with here. So happy to be here. Oh, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and so my name is uh, Elvir and I'm, I'm a classically trained singer. So I also can say that I have multiple hats. Uh, so of course I sing professionally and I also teach uh, singing and music for small children. And so uh, I started... Um, to work with ACT when I was doing my master's degree in singing performance. And I wanted, I was looking for a topic for my thesis and I had studied psychology also before. And so uh, I stumbled uh, upon ACT and uh, really loved it, really loved this approach that was uh, different from what I had uh, read until now. And so I've decided to write my master thesis on how musicians and music teachers, because I was doing master thesis for both, uh, could um, could apply uh, these, the processes of ACT uh, in order to improve their performance and well-being. And of course, when I started writing that, I stumbled on, upon the work of Dave that uh, 
we can say is a pioneer in this field. And so I, we start, we entered in contact and we, we started working together, wrote an article. And uh, after this, uh, we started on this book and I'm, uh, I'm so, so happy because I've been having some, some feedback that is actually uh, quite good and really great. People are really excited about uh, this new approach. Oh, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. And to go off that last point, you know, Steve Hayes gave you quite the, uh, the review there. I mean, that really made me excited. That must have felt good to have someone like oh, him speak so highly yes. of the book. He, he was more than happy to review it, actually. And, and that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, if anyone knows Steve Hayes, he's just super gracious like that. You know, I've met him a couple times in person and he's always down to talk, always like available for feedback for anything you're doing. So he he was more than happy to do it. It took a little bit of, you know, uh, time to, to get him. Right. Um, but it, once I figured out how to contact him, he was more than willing to do it. So mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's really uh He's really instilled the open source and collaborative spirit to act, which is really nice. I imagine for being in your position and trying to embark on something new. Yeah. So I guess going off of that, this is, this is something, you know, kind of new in the field, act for musicians. I was so excited. Could you maybe share a little bit about the, I guess just, let's just start, share a little bit about the book and how, how you went about writing this, what one would find inside of it. Uh, I'll start. And I know Elvira has, has a lot to add to here. Um, I, aside from the obvious, it's, it's the first book to focus on using act with musicians. I think um, there, there are two other perhaps lesser known qualities to the book that deserve attention. Uh, the first is that it, it's an evidence-based practice model of care that I embody, and I think this spirit of evidence-based work uh, comes up in the book here, meaning uh, it's, it's thoroughly cited. There's a lot of research that went into it, um, and, and the idea behind this is we want musicians to receive the same kind of level of care that a clinical practitioner would, would give to them, You know, meaning if they're suffering with a problem, they can get on Google, they can search more about it, and perhaps even self-diagnose, and then ideally find someone in their community or even online these days who is trained uh, in the best, most evidence way to, to treat that problem. Um, and and we, we think that cuts out a lot of time for, you know, patients in the general public, you know, to ideally focus on someone who is more than likely to help them or not. Uh, but I don't think that spirit of kind of evidence-based practice has existed within how music, uh, uh, sorry, within the music world, with, with how musicians have typically received treatment here. So uh, I think, you know, there, there's there's even points in the book when we make clear um, what the research level of support is for, for ACT in treating perfectionism, for example, or in treating procrastination, for example. And there are times when ACT doesn't doesn't uh, compete as well as CBT, you know, and we make that clear in the book here. So the idea is that, you know, you, you want to empower the, the people reading this book so they can make smarter decisions about how they're consuming not just mental health services, but other services available to them. And uh, inherent in that work is the, the cool thing about ACT is that it is a non-clinical approach. It doesn't just restrict, uh, it's not just restricted, excuse me, to, you know, within the therapy session here. You can be someone like Elvira, who's a singing teacher, and receive adequate training in using this approach here within your music lesson. You can be um, another non-clinical practitioner, like a performance coach, or uh, even other clinical practitioners who are outside of the, the psychotherapy world can get involved in this work here. So, it doesn't just belong to kind of clinicians sitting inside of a therapy 
office only here. And I think for that reason, it's, it, it's, it's a powerful, um, it's a powerful intervention that I think musicians really deserve to make use of here because we all know musicians, they are sensitive, they're vulnerable people. So to, uh, to restrict access to just, you know, the psychotherapy office, access to treatment to just the psychotherapy office, I think is, is doing them a disservice here. So it, it touches on uh, those two areas there here. So I think for that reason, uh, the book may be more of help to musicians than previous interventions or previous books along this, along these lines. Mm-hmm. What do you think out here? Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, I like very much actually uh, what Steve, uh, Stephen Hayes uh, wrote. Uh, like it's like a, an instructor that refuses to give up on you about the book because it's really like we we go through uh, all the six processes of ACT. First of all, we explain, of course, what ACT is in general. Uh, we explain all the research that has been done and how you were saying, uh, com- comparing the research, comparing CBT and ACT. So we make like this first part and you can read it or not this chapter because if, imagine you're a musician and you don't really want to know all about the details of the research, then you can just skip to the practical part. So for each process, there is a chapter where we explain and we give concrete exercises that you can do inside the book. And after we have uh, then chapters on specific uh, topics that are uh, so important for the musicians. So, of course, music performance anxiety and uh, perfectionism, procrastination, uh, uh, shame. Uh, what am I forgetting? And of course, shame, we have- self-critical thinking, burnout. So and of course, also well. injuries and pain, pain management mm-hmm. is also very important. And after we also have a chapter on teaching, uh, on how to use ACT uh, in the singing uh, class. It's like some kind of advices. I've been using uh, ACT when I, in my, during my singing lessons. So uh, with my singing student, students, I've been using not like a coach. It's not like a coaching session. I'm doing my music lesson, my singing lesson. In my case, I'm a singer. And we are using like also the, the processes of act during the lesson to some to 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 help the students when they're having some some hurdles or some blockages on something. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I so much of this resonates with me when I think back about my own relationship to music and performance and songwriting like how much it was such a how just like stressful and anxiety inducing all of that was for reasons you described in there like that perfectionism part where you expect every immediately when you start writing a song for it to be the thing you show people and the pressure that puts on you or how easy it is to go up into your own head when you're performing instead of staying in the moment and uh so i guess with that i'd love uh as much as you're willing to share could how has your own experience with music informed your work and your writing? Like, would you be willing to share a little bit about how maybe you had to kind of understand some of these dynamics within yourself? Mm-hmm. You want, I can, yeah, I can, I can start. It, yeah, I can start with me. I mean, uh, I think she's a yeah. musician and, and I'm yeah. just a part-time musician. You could say she's a full-time <laughs> Yeah, you're speaking about another part time, another part timer over here. So the two yeah. of us together. One second. Do you hear the dog right now or not? Uh, I heard a little, little bit, but it was not too bad. 
No, it's not distracting at all. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so I will. No, wait. I will just close the. <laughs> it's like it's like he heard us. He's yeah, like, okay. yeah. They want in. I was going to um, quickly elaborate on something Elvira said, if I may, uh, but I want to answer your question yeah. in a sec. Um, she she weaves uh, the act interventions, I think, pretty seamlessly into her work as as a singing teacher, like into the music lesson. Whereas I. Perhaps, you know, because of the way I've been trained, I, I approach it like more formally. So, you know, I'll kind of plan, uh, the, you know, this is where the client is stuck, you know, for example, if they're overly fused with their thinking or they're, they're having too much avoidance, then, you know, I want to dedicate a session or two to tackling and undermining those processes there. So I, I think it's it's something that we should talk about, too, is is the approach is, is sometimes different across practitioners here. You know, clinical practitioners may actually have a lot more structure in how they approach it, and, and it might be easier for them to, to measure what it is they're doing and to have confidence in what they're doing. Uh, but Elvira is talking about how, um, to, to come back to what, you're, what we were talking about, the way that you kind of seamlessly weave act interventions into your music lessons, I think is worthy of talking about too. Um, you keep it very organic and natural, like you know, you just kind of pause if someone is stuck in a thought, a perfectionistic thought, and you know, it seems to be really distressing to them. You just use that as a teaching moment, essentially. So it, it's kind of like coaching, um, even though I, I, I know you're not kind of dedicating the entire hour or whatnot to a coaching session here. You are functioning in both the coach and teaching role here, you know, as long as you're not just imparting information and stopping there, but you're 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 teaching this new act-related information. You're coaching someone through their implementation of the skills there. So. Um, but I'm getting yeah. ahead of myself. Uh, I, I guess we can go in this. this no, yeah. Here. Mm, I was feel free so... to feel free to take it wherever you want. Sure. Yeah, follow sure. the moment. It's okay. Yeah. So you were speaking about anxiety and uh, perfectionism, and I think, I mean, I think almost all musicians can absolutely rely, rely with that. At least with this, it's some it's in some measure. Um, and for me. Um, well, it was also an issue and it was also one of the reasons I wanted to work with that because when I was doing my master master's, I was in university and I didn't feel I got, uh, I was having all this teaching about, um, about the music, of course, but I didn't have, um, I, was, I wasn't giving uh, any tools or at least not enough um, to deal with uh, this with the psychological part of the, with the mental part of the performance. And so that was lacking for me. And that's why I was looking for answers. And I feel that the musicians in general are very much behind in this part. And I mean, a person that wants to do a career in music, and this is, it's not enough to be a, to have a great talent and be a very good musician, you have to you have to have the scheme for it, if we can say like that, and you have to have the tools, the mental tools for it. And I think this is, I mean, perhaps, of course, it depends. Some people come and are already mentally very strong and they manage to it, but some people, young people that start studying uh, aren't, aren't necessarily prepared for that. In my case, I was absolutely not. So this I say very honestly. And so I, yeah, so I was looking when I was doing my master thesis about answers because I knew that I had qualities musically to bring. But then 
some something was not uh, letting me the anxiety I was was getting in my way of really like uh, showing up what I wanted on stage so and for me the, the key point was really like what didn't work for me was this thing of thinking positive and uh, trying to change my thoughts this wasn't this this wasn't working for me because they were there and I I couldn't just put them under the carpet and forget about them or try or try to change them so act allowed me actually to to work with them and this felt very liberating for me so for me as a musician yes this is i i think i i don't know if this answers your question yeah yeah no no it does it's uh it just it shows a little bit how organically uh act model fit into something you were already experiencing not working like it kind of just fit right in instead instead of uh um forcing it in like there was a perfect opening within your own experience for act to fit into that which is really cool yeah absolutely no it really felt like that and so yeah and sometimes so that's what i try to bring uh with to my students when i feel um because we all have we all have this tendency naturally of trying to take to get rid of the negative things or what we judge uh, what we we say is negative and so um how can i try very organically uh, as i can because i don't as they were saying as don't, i don't consider myself as a coach i consider myself as a singing teacher but it's true that on one on one singing lessons it has a lot to do with coaching, no, even a teacher that doesn't want or doesn't feel at all connected to this work with mental work, in the end, you are working one-on-one -on -one with very with music, which is a channel for emotions, a channel for a lot of things. And so, of course, in things happen in the music lesson, and and so it's it's a good moment actually you can to 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 work on those things to speak about a bit about it and it can work well within the music lesson. It doesn't have to be like now we're going to, do. it can be if the student is interested to know a bit more about art and to know a bit more about the, the concepts behind it. But so that we do at the beginning, let's do like a bit of act and after let's do singing for a while, but it can also be, I have many students with whom I don't really speak about the details of act. So yeah, I totally understand that. Even just clinical therapy can kind of be like that. A, a lot of it can just be implicit in the mm -hmm. session, not explicit. Now we're doing act. Mm -hmm. Now we're doing this process. So yeah. it's very cool. What about you, gonna, What's uh, like... Well, I was going to highlight something that, that Elvira is saying, that, uh, that there's numerous meta-analyses studying the psychotherapeutic relationship that conclude that, you know, the the strength of the experience for the client doesn't always come from what model of therapy is used. And rather it's, you know, the, the fact that their, their therapist is empathic and has unconditional positive regard and they have a good working relationship, meaning they agree on, you know, the problems to be solved and the methods to solve them, essentially the goals. Um, and I talked about in, in a couple of papers that I've contributed to that this, this diet, this diet, this dynamic doesn't just exist within, within the therapy model here. You know, you see this within coaching you see this within teaching here. So, Oftentimes, uh, you know, there's, there's a bigger systemic issue at work here, and Elvira, you can speak to this, that many music teachers feel that this is beyond their competence. They, they shouldn't 
touch on performance anxiety. They shouldn't, you know, uh, they should stay in their lane essentially. Uh, but I, when training them, I make the case, you know, if you have these kind of healing qualities or, you know, positive relational qualities within your, within your, uh, uh, dyads with you and your students, and you're already helping them. So you're much more likely to be of assistance to them. If you have that empathy, if you have that unconditional positive regard. So as long as you have adequate training and act, and, and thankfully there's no certification process required for act, you know, so if someone, if someone is adequately trained to do it and they're supervised in, in it and they feel, you know, that they know what they're doing and, and, you know, the supervisor can agree that they have competency, then you can certainly make meaningful impact on the work you're doing here with your students. So uh, this is the bigger picture problem here. Within music training institutions and conservatories across the world, you have this kind of glaring problem, music performance anxiety, and many um, people refusing to touch it because it doesn't fall within their jurisdiction here. So the training mm -hmm. that I do um, at the Voice Study Center and training singing teachers and performance coaches is to kind of open their mind up to the possibility, actually, yes, you can help. You know, because look, you know, these relational qualities are known to be good outcomes within psychotherapy. So if you have these qualities and if you have, if you have adequate training in what you're doing, then you certainly could be of help. And in fact, I think music students might even prefer to keep it within, you know, the music lesson rather than actually seeking help from a psychotherapist who is without with, outside of that culture. You know, they, they don't often want to open up to someone who doesn't understand them and doesn't operate within the bubble that they operate in here. So, wow. So much of this sounds, uh, very parallel to the challenges and the opportunities within sports. Um, I think a lot of the same dynamics exist. Yep. But interestingly, ACT has found its way into the sport psych world 15, 20 years ago now. Uh, oh, yeah. In fact, my, my old mentor uh, from LaSalle University, Frank Gardner, and his wife, Zella Moore, they, they co-created the MAC, which is uh, Mindfulness and Acceptance and Commitment Approach to Sports Performance Enhancement. Mm. Those articles and their first books were coming out in like 2004 or 2005 or so, 2007. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so uh, I, I, I question why it's taken so long, you know, to kind of weave this stuff into the music world and music institutions. But Elvira, maybe you can speak better to this than I, I can. I think and as an outside observer, it seems that classical music and the institutions that teach it and train students in it are a little bit more resistant to change. And, and doing performance psychology may be kind of viewed as that threatening change perhaps, but I wouldn't I mean, know as well as she does. She, she's been in the institutions herself. Yeah. I mean, I cannot speak for America. I, I, because I'm in Europe. Um, so I feel in Europe that we, at least when I was studying that there, there wasn't much openness from the teachers yet. Perhaps you're saying like old fashioned, I don't know to, to work this, perhaps it's what you were saying, like feeling that they didn't know how to do unwilling. Um, and so I couldn't say really, I, what is it that makes that we don't, uh, that we are not, um, we are so behind on this, but the, the fact is that we are, this is absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. I, I think perhaps there is a lot of an economical issue also, uh, because in the music industry, I mean, at least classical music, um, it's always a huge question. And I know that the universities and departments struggle, uh, at least, uh, yeah, at least it's my experience here in, in Europe. So this also has to do, of course, with that in sports, there is more money and so more mm -hmm. possibilities. Um, mm. So... 
yeah, so we have to work on our on our level how we can. And um, yeah, I think the book is really really good for musicians also if we are speaking about economically because you for musicians also we are speaking a day for space speaking sometimes students are unwilling to get uh, help outside of course it's it's a huge step it's also sometimes a financial step um especially when you're a student to to go go get coaching i mean it's not so it's not so obvious that you have the means to do that so uh, so of course uh, if your university is not giving uh, some opportunities to, to work on that, then it's more difficult. Uh, so with the book, at least it's a possibility. That's why I'm really happy about it also. It's a possibility for you uh, exactly to, to work on you because me too, I was working with a book, a self-help book of uh, Russ Harris. Uh, and so that was that was my, my sessions at the time. So that was, was helping me. Uh, and after I continued working because I had background on psychology. Mm. Would, uh, I'd be curious, could we dive a little bit uh, more into some of those common challenges that musicians face that you think ACT can be helpful with? <laughs> so we touched on a few like perfectionism, procrastination, shame. Could could we explore some of those a little bit more? Sure, sure. Um, I, I think we should touch on performance anxiety maybe a little bit. It's been mentioned a few times thus far. Um, yeah, yeah. I, we, we all know a musician or someone, you know, perhaps we're friends with who suffers from performance anxiety. And I often use the example of Barbara Streisand as a good teaching example. Um, she, she is someone who, uh, at least according to what you can read online, uh, she had a bad performance in her late twenties in the, in the late sixties in central park, it was one of those like massive, uh, you know, summer series concerts with like hundreds of thousands of people. And rumor has it that she forgot the words for America the Beautiful and she just kind of like froze and didn't know how to finish out her set. And uh, rumor has it that she didn't return to public performing for 25, 30 years after that. And in fact, wow. the only way she would go back is if she could sing from reading off a teleprompter. So that way she was, you know, highly unlikely to, to make that same mistake again. and She wouldn't forget the lyrics again. Uh, so, you know, for someone who's like really like up and coming and, and potentially, you know, uh, in the prime of her career here to miss out on, you know, performing in her thirties and forties and fifties like that is, is a huge loss from an app perspective. And we, we touch on this in the book, you know, it begs the question, why, why was she stuck in her performance anxiety? Why couldn't she uh, get the help that she needed? Was there help available to her? Um, who knows exactly what kind of help was available in the late sixties and seventies, most likely is beta blocker medication or, uh, psychoanalysis, I'd imagine. Uh, but from an ACT perspective, ACT is really useful in that it doesn't just teach you how to help yourself, it teaches you how you're stuck, too. So um, she's very likely fusing with her thoughts related to that performance and avoidant of future performances here. And for the listeners who are not entirely sure what it means to be fused or avoidant, when you're fused with your thinking, you know, it's like your thoughts are just so front and centrally occurring in your mind, you know, they are real or they are you their reality and, you know, your behaviors is kind of ruled by them. So we can, we can really, uh, with a high degree of certitude, assume that she was fusing with the thought that, you know, that was awful. I, I never want that experience again. And I should avoid public performance again to minimize uh, anything like that ever happening again. And where there is fusion, you know, fusion avoidance always travel in pairs. I, I teach the, the teachers that I train here. 
she was reacting to those thoughts as if they were real, as if they were, you know, rules to be followed or commands to be obeyed here. So she she was highly avoidant and uh, just, you know, unfortunately didn't return to public performance for years and years afterwards here. So that is a good mechanism for why people are stuck in their performance anxiety. If you are overly fusing with your thoughts related to your performance, like thoughts related to making a mistake, the thoughts related to the future of potentially making a mistake, um, you're going to react in an avoidant fashion. You're going to try and push those thoughts out of your mind and avoid the entire experience of them entirely or triggers for those thoughts, like another performance there. So uh, it's useful then to uh, to flesh it out, and we do this in the book with clients you're working with. How do you undermine this process of fusion? How do you kind of separate yourself from your thinking so that way you're not so bought into, so hooked into your thoughts like she very likely was, uh, and also so that your behavior isn't so avoidant? Uh, and obviously, you know, working with clients and teaching them to disentangle themselves from their thinking, you know, through a lot of defusion techniques and exercises, metaphors, et cetera, that would have been very useful for, for Babs, right? You know, to kind of develop that skill of just like noticing, okay, my mind is trying to convince me if I do this performance again the following summer, you know, who knows when, like, yeah, I might forget the lyrics or some bad thing might happen, but, you know, I'm just going to let that thought rest in my mind and kind of acknowledge its presence, as Elvira has alluded to earlier, remain open to having that thought potentially remain open to having that experience the way it exactly was again, um, but but not avoid it, essentially. And that willingness and that openness to that experience, whether it's the experience of making a mistake like that again, or just the experience of the thought or the fear of making that mistake again, uh, that strengthens your resolve. It strengthens your willpower. You know, it, It's like a muscle, essentially. So so the remedy is is disentangling yourself from your, your thoughts related to music performance and anxiety and being open to the thoughts as well as the experiences that are so troubling. And I think that's where ACT is, is very useful. You can you can kind of teach clients that you work with or, you know, musician uh, yourself, you know, how, how you're stuck in using the BADS example here to illustrate those processes of avoidance and beauty and what to do about it, too. That's, that's the beauty of the ACT model. It's not just the diagnostic model. You can actually learn skills to undermine these harmful processes too. It's uh, that story resonates with me so much and helps me. Yeah. I, I have such a vivid memory of when I first started writing songs and performing and I was in college and I got accepted into this songwriters competition and a bunch of people I knew came. And um, when I was doing one of the songs, I, forgot to sing the chorus one time and then there wow. was a whistle solo and I messed it all up. So all the audience can hear is like someone blowing into the mic. And when that ended, the just intense feelings that showed up after that and just like wanting to be alone and like how bad I felt about myself and that performance, I can totally see how, I don't even know how I moved through that, but like the allure to not want to experience that again, mm -hmm. I can see how that can be a cycle someone gets stuck into. And I must yep. have just been willing to, I must have just loved music so much more than not feeling that, that I did yep. it again shortly yep. after and worked through it. But yeah, that feeling, and I can't imagine what that must have been like for her with so many Me people neither, watching right? and being famous. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a really, really tough feeling making mistakes publicly like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Most likely she was having shame and self-critical thinking. I think that's an obvious one there. And uh, sorry to cut you off, Elvira. I'll just quickly add, I, um, I, we dive into that as well in the book. We have a chapter on, um, you know, act as it relates to well-being. And we kind of lump in shame and self-critical thinking into that category there. And 
There's a lot of newer, useful mindfulness and acceptance approaches like compassion-focused therapy that really helps people deal with shame-based thinking and, um, you know, viewing yourself as less than, using these experiences to kind of further that story in your mind that, you know, because you have this experience, you are less than. Uh, less than the ideal singer you want to be or less than other people, you know, in your peer group or whatnot. Um, so it, there's skill in just kind of like not just diffusing from moment to moment thinking, but also diffusing from those thoughts, like those self the value to thoughts or those stories, you know, and the ACT model as well as these related therapies like compassion-focused therapy really do teach concrete skills to just kind of be the space in which these thoughts exist or these stories exist. They might be about you, but you and them, you could draw a line in the sand and separate them from you if you had to like that. And that, that skill set is very useful and just kind of being in the shame space rather than allowing it to define you. Mm. Yeah, this is yeah. absolutely such an important uh, part of act this all uh, can we say disentangling uh, getting unstuck uh, i mean because you are you are fused with your thoughts and so it feels like such something like completely stuck and how you can a bit deconstruct this and a bit look it uh, from outside yourself and uh, and get another perspective on it i think also for me um very important uh, is the idea that you 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 can perform and you can do the things even if you have uh, you having this anxiety even if you're having the most uh, painful or difficult thoughts so for me that was I think this is a very important aspect also of act is is this uh, acceptance that they are here and an acceptance that it's possible to to continue with them present and even perhaps to find a relationship with it, with them somehow how you can relate to them with them or not so um so that this yeah so this whole aspect of 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 getting to know of getting another perspective with them and i think also the aspect of it's possible to continue pursuing what matters to you so to continue on on focusing on okay so what are what is important for me right now and this is this work that you have to do absolutely uh, before you 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 go on doing something is to know okay before i take singing lessons when i start like to see with my students okay why are you here what are you hoping to achieve why is music important to you Uh, and so to have these things, to these values clear for you, after you know, okay, I have my beacon, and no matter what are the monsters, I don't know, I see a bit of, I see the light like at the end of the tunnel, I see the monsters perhaps uh, along this tunnel when I'm walking, but I can, I can continue pursuit with them present. And this is also important. You don't have to wait to feel uh, good or wait that you are not feeling anxious or wait that this piece is perfect before you go on performing. Yes. Yeah. That's the trap, right? Once this, then that is the, like a pattern of thinking people can get really stuck in. Once I that's, feel, that's probably, once I feel or don't feel this, then I can do this. That's probably where Barbara Streisand was stuck there. She was probably waiting until her anxiety went away to return to public performance again. I don't know that to be true, but that would be my, my diagnostic impression. Oh man. Yeah. It's, um, I, I, I don't know what just showed up for me is, uh, kind of probably acknowledging how many people are out there that probably 
would really like to be more creative and try an instrument or try performing or try songwriting, but that um, how much all of these different processes we're talking about get in the way of people even taking a step into that arena. Um, yes. So there, there's like an application here for people uh, that are professional musicians or maybe make, make a living off of this, right? And or are really committed in some other way. But then there's probably a whole application for people that have just have are stuck from even taking a step into this space. Absolutely. I have I have many students who are amateur, I mean, not professionals, and uh, they they struggle so much, of course, with all this. And so many times I've had students that actually, okay, they came to me, so they already took the step, but they come to me and they say, actually, I really cannot sing. And everybody told me that I, my mother was always telling me I cannot sing. So many times I hear that people were telling me, uh, but I really wanted it, so I came, and after we started working on that, and so absolutely, we all have these self-defeating thoughts at some point telling us that actually. So the way the question is uh, to learn the tools to be able to to have a flexible, a more flexible relationship with those feelings, because we are not going to be able to avoid them forever. They are always going to come at some point. Sometimes we are able to put them on the side, but in the end they are going to come back. So how can I find a new way to relate with them? Yeah. Could, could we, so we talked a little bit about performance anxiety. Could we talk, tell me a little bit about perfectionism and how that shows up with musicians and like where new pathways could be formed out of that? I, I think in many ways it is a huge risk factor for developing MPI music performance anxiety. Uh, as it's a known risk factor for developing clinical anxiety problems, uh, eating disorders, et cetera. And if you think of it as what it is, it's really a behavioral pattern uh, where someone gets locked into the sphere of their vulnerable self, like being found out or being exposed to others. So, um, you know, they might take to like kind of overdoing it and, and just uh, performing way too much or doing, taking on way too many things. So that way they kind of minimize that staying in contact with that vulnerable side of themselves and they can therefore disprove, you know, the, the demons inside that say, you're not, you're not good enough by just like all these other accomplishments here. Look, if I can accomplish all these things in all these ways, then these demons must not be true. What they say about me must not be true. Uh, or on the, the flip side is that you're overly procrastinating uh, because you just can't deal with, you know, feeling that vulnerable side. So you're kind of avoiding any triggers for that vulnerable less than feeling that you get there. Um, and procrastination, unfortunately, does correlate often with maladaptive perfectionism there. So it, it could go either way, and certainly it's not just a, a matter of either or. There's other ways that behavior is colored by perfectionism. But it really is like a maladaptive pattern of behavior where someone is just rigidly like trying too hard to kind of disprove their in internal dialogue or, or just like not trying at all, essentially. And mm -hmm. ACT, um, as far as I know, ACT is, is newly tested as a treatment for maladaptive perfectionism. There's been work within, I think, like the last three or four years coming from Utah State uh, with Michael Levin's research team there, um, where they're comparing it to other treatments as usual. And as of right now, CBT has a little bit more empirical support as a treatment for maladaptive perfectionism, but that's just a remnant of it's been around longer. I think CBT, you know, and ACT are essentially equally efficacious. And in time, I think you'll see act showing either equivalency or superiority when compared to CBT as a perfectionism treatment. Uh, but regardless, you know, I think the act approach is useful in treating perfectionism, especially as it relates to, you know, these, these big things that musicians, especially students have to do like audition, like solo, 
you know, if, if someone is excessively approaching that, like, uh, in a maladaptive way where they're just avoiding solos entirely, or they're just like taking on too many uh, audition opportunities or too many solo opportunities, uh, then, you know, they're, they're not, they're not always going to approach it in the most flexible way there. So, uh, act as it relates to perfectionism, it'll have you kind of open up to the possibility of having your vulnerable side be exposed and learning to be okay with that and, and not fearing it, you know, and, and learning to embrace it and incorporate some new behavior into those very moments, behavior that is values based, for example, behavior that is more authentic to you. So that way you can be vulnerable, just like we're talking about being anxious. You can be vulnerable while also, you know, engaging with values while also doing things that are meaningful for you. And if you can do those two things at once, if you can, you know, learn the skill of just feeling one way, behaving in another way, that is such a central idea to being psychologically flexible. And that's really like the, the main mechanism of the act model there. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It gave me flashbacks to just how much that, um, was challenging for me early on in, uh, songwriting and recording music where I was both like the performer of the different instruments and the one doing the recording. Like I self produced just like an EP when I was in college and like the ability to take as do as many takes as you wanted to, to try to make a guitar riff or something you sang better and better and how narrowed in on you, you can, you can get trying to make something better can just like completely corrupt and undermine the whole richness of an experience when you're in this sort of like tunnel vision pursuit. And then when I did another EP after that and I went to, I did it at a studio with somebody that I trusted, how much um, more pleasurable that experience was to have somebody else to like give you some feedback and like kind of give you some reality testing around, uh, around the process. And so guess just sort of sharing a little reflection and validating how much this can play a role and how there's different ways that you can approach it that make the process enriching and fun or just kind of hollow them out and make it like, yeah, just deflate the whole process of it. There's a great quote from Brene Brown, the, the awesome shame researcher who labels perfectionism. It, it's like carrying a 20 ton shield. You're using to try and, you know, like deflect away vulnerability or deflect away judgment from other people. But the process of carrying that shield is just like overwhelming. So yes, I think that yeah. hits it on the head there. Yes. Yeah. Where do you see it, uh, Elvira? Where do you see perfectionism showing up when you're um, teaching people how to sing and, and develop their singing skills? How does perfectionism show up in that space? I can absolutely relate in the, the recording. Uh, often my students also want to, to, to record what, what they, they are working on. And so um, they always feel like you always have this feeling of not being ready enough. And so sometimes it, it, leads, to, it leads to a kind of, of procrastination. Perhaps let's do it uh, next week perhaps uh, mm. let's uh, let's i would like to work a bit more on that so there is this this aspect and also a lot um i consider myself as being somebody that has high standards for my students but sometimes the students they have even higher standards um and so you always have to no, for example, we were working on some uh, high notes or something, and I said this was great, and they were like, "No, this was this was not uh, this was not uh, nice enough." And so I'm saying, "Okay, but let's see from uh, what we already what what from where we come from." So to try to give a bit uh, on perspective on that. So this this happens a lot, and so here 
coming back to, to, to the ACT approach, of course, um, I feel that uh, it's, again, the, the, what I try always, it's, again, coming, okay, what, what was important for us? Where did we come from? What is our values? What did we want to reach? And try to get, again, a bit more a perspective on that. And also, of course, the diffusion on... Um, what is my what is my self talk being right now? What is it that is it saying? What and who is this voice we're speaking right now? And afterwards, of course, always very important is is this thought useful or is it not useful? So coming back to uh, when we have this critical voice, this voice who is very perfectionist with us. Uh, telling, okay, is it useful for us right now or is it not useful? So, for example, coming back to the example of the high notes for singers, uh, important topic, um, is we are we, if we are like one week before uh, an audition or something, is it useful for us now? Not really, yeah? So we are doing what we, we have right now, but now it's not the time to work on trying to be technical mm. better. It is how it is. We are working on the best. What do we know now? What can we do now? Of course, sometimes yeah, even yeah. if we do very, we know very well, things happen. We were speaking about Barbara Streisand. She knows very well the lyrics. It can happen to be blank. But if we are in a moment where we have a lot of time ahead of us to work, then yes, it's useful to be critical. It's useful to analyze the sound and saying, okay, this was not well. How can I, how can I perfect, perfect this? So it's yeah, always and that's a what changes it. Useful, not useful. For me, I, I use this a lot. Yeah, and it shows the importance of context and how the Absolutely. context changed, how we relate to thoughts, which is a little different than a CBT approach where you can definitively say this is a good or bad thought and change them. A final question for you before we wrap up. Uh, again, congrats on the book and sort of charting this new frontier here. If you If you could see a future like let's say like where the mute like uh if you could see the future you wanted with act being integrated into um music performance and music industry like what what are some of the things you'd really want in the future well uh, i would really want to to see um to see in universities this is universities that we, we train students for that, that we, we bring this approach to students uh, with uh, workshops or with the, the work that uh, Dave is doing with, with singing teachers, trainings for singing teachers, singing teachers being aware of that, but also workshops for them. And uh, so this, this would be really my wish in the future that I think this has to be integrated in the university because this is where, uh, yeah, this is where it begins for somebody who wants to mm. to do to be a musician, yeah. Mm, uh, I totally echo what Elvir is saying here, and uh, it, it's often it, it's often thought in the universities, especially in America, that you know that this is the reason uh, the the reason. Sorry, that we um, what am I saying? We 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 need to hire someone basically full time to do this kind of work here, and. I think, as far as I know, there's two schools in the entire country that have a full-time performance psychologist. Juilliard is one. Uh, I think Oberlin also is number two. I could be wrong about that, though. 
and we've got 650 plus schools accredited by the National Association of Schools of Music Education here. So for the overwhelming vast majority of them, the funding either isn't there to hire someone to do this work or, or the interest perhaps is not there or some other kind of hurdles are coming up here. So this is where the work, the newer work that I've been doing in training teachers to kind of take up the work, you know, carry the torch that clinical psychologists um, have given to them here is super important. I, I don't think that psychologists uh, need to be the only practitioner to do this kind of work here. In fact, uh, in my new research, I'll just quickly say that uh, two studies thus far that I published um, in which I've trained a singing teacher to do this, they're getting similar results and they're doing it in half the time as I am too. And in fact, some of the effect sizes they're getting are larger than the effect sizes I got here. So granted, it's wow. it's small scale research, you know, uh, there's not controls built into the, to the methodology. So, you know, you can't definitively say that singing teachers are better practitioners, MPA practitioners, if you will, performance anxiety specialists and clinical psychologists. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, it doesn't just stop there. There's actually a handful of other studies that I've been overseeing, uh, and it seems to be a growing trend that singing teachers and music teachers are getting the same result as a psychologist here. So I hope that that um, gives singing teachers and musicians as well as music teachers in institutions the confidence that they can take up this work here. They don't have to keep on outsourcing, outsourcing it to psychotherapists, and they might even do it better. So that would be the hope then is to, to build a culture of like act practitioners that is very much transdisciplinary where it doesn't just kind of fall within clinical or, um, you know, education is somewhere in the middle or maybe like it, we're creating like a new practitioner, an act practitioner uh, who can take yeah. up this work here. Yeah. There's like um, space for, yeah, like someone like me who's a, a clinician who like has foundations in music. And then there's also like, music teachers who have like really good human skills and there's like a lot of cool space in the middle for Absolutely. something to build build upon and i wish we had another hour to talk but how about could we just uh well first of all thank you for being here and i'm really excited about the work and i can't read wait to read the book and learn from it and um share it with others and uh so yeah thank you and would you want to end by just sharing a little bit about how people can get in touch with you or connect with you uh, sure. Actformusicians.com, A-C-T for musicians.com is my personal webpage where I give my contact info. You can order the book. You can learn more about me and uh, the research and other work I do there. So that's the best approach for me. Thank you so much, Thomas, for having me. Yes. You can find more information of my work in actvocal.com. And uh, yes, thank you very much for having us. It was a pleasure. Uh, thank you again. It's got me out of my mind It's got me seeing trees breathe It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me It's got me feeling the love That I bottled so deep When the entire world kept feeding on my grief I know I'll never know 
But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul Oh yes I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath and try to open my soul 